0: good morning everybody good morning. our text this morning for Bible study is Romans chapter 11 verses 33 through 36 if you want to open your Bible to that passage pew Bible like I'm using right here page 920 and our welcome to summer by the way thank you for being part of this uh, time together um, this passage in Romans 11 for our study today it serves as a conclusion to a four-part mini-series coming from Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 about our great God. Pastor Mark presented two of those four messages. Pastor Mike one, and I get to wrap it up today. I've entitled this this study a rock for when my world gets rocked. And we're going to look at the unfathomable depths of God's knowledge and wisdom. You up for that? Yeah. We're going to attempt to gain strength by focusing on the unsearchable riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. So let's go ahead and read the text right now. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Look at it and listen. I'll read it out loud. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God, you are greater and more awesome than anything we can imagine, understand, comprehend. And yet today we attempt to look at some of your greatness. And I pray that through the faltering attempts of one week, such as I, we would be strengthened, challenged, encouraged. As through the scripture, inspired by your Holy Spirit, and illumined by him to our hearts and minds, we come to understand you better. And we make this prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes things happen in our lives which rock our world. They cause the paradigms in our minds to shift. They cause important questions that we had previously cause us to question things that we'd previously held as truth. Take, for instance, that time when you realized that contrary to everything your well-meaning parents had taught you, you actually could eat a big meal and then jump immediately into the pool without waiting the full 30 minutes. You tried it, you didn't cramp up, you didn't drown, and you lived to tell about it. Can you ever trust anything your parents ever tell you again? Your world was rocked. Or that time you were told that if you swallow your chewing gum, it's going to be in your your system for five to seven years because your body can't digest it. Some of you accidentally swallowed your gum and have lived in fear ever since, right? So I hate to rock your world, but I will. Chewing gum will pass through your system just like any other food that you swallow. Or how about when you learn the truth about the tooth fairy? In my house, the tooth fairy has a name, Sylvia. And Sylvia leaves notes, along with dollar bills, in exchange for teeth. My children do a lot of handwriting analysis on those notes. (laughs) So I'm being lighthearted as I introduce what is potentially a weighty subject, because there are times in our lives when our faith gets disrupted, our world gets rocked, the foundation of our lives appears to crumble, And the beliefs we thought we were so sure of, we begin to question. These are unnerving moments. When we're tempted to throw in the towel on our faith, we cry, it's not fair. We blame God, we grow bitter, or maybe we just chuck it all. What does that have to do with Romans 11, 33 through 36? Well, in this passage, which we read, Paul's doxology, it's a hymn, a psalm. Did you catch it? It was a song of praise to God in this passage, he reminds us of some of the foundational truths that will serve as a rock for our hearts and for our faith when our world gets rocked and our faith gets shaken. You may be in a place like that today. Your world's been rocked. The jury is still out. You don't know where you're going to land. You've got questions that haven't been answered, circumstances that you don't like. You, you, you're, you're feeling rocked. Now, I want you to remember that this passage just doesn't show up out of the blue. It comes at the end of 11 chapters of one of the most weighty discourses in all of the New Testament. Paul has been giving great detail, beginning with the universality of sin and fallenness of all mankind in chapters 1 through 3. Then in chapters 4 and 5, he talks about God's amazing grace as God declares righteous, justifies sinners on the basis of their faith in Christ. He takes it even further in chapters 6, to eight, six through 8, where he says it's not just a, a righteous position, but it's a righteous life that God works in us by changing us through the indwelling Holy Spirit who empowers us to live life on a new plane. And then we come to chapters 9 through 11, where we spent the last few weeks, and it's a discourse on God's sovereign election and mercy, particularly in relation to his chosen people, Israel. And the result of all this, Paul comes to at the end of chapter 11, he's so enraptured with the unfathomable greatness of God that he breaks out in a hymn or a song or a doxology of praise, and that's our text today. It is the experience of this greatness of God that will become a rock in our lives when our world gets rocked and our faith gets threatened. Now, I think there's two things generally that rock our world and threaten our faith. And the first we could call unanswered questions. But let's add to it. Unanswered questions or unacceptable answers. We like to talk about the Alpha Course as a place to come and bring your questions. Maybe you've taken it. Maybe you've taken it a couple of times and your small group leader still hasn't answered your questions. Or the answers that you have heard don't seem to satisfy. They seem unacceptable. You've talked to your pastor, and yet you still come away with unanswered questions. Romans 9 through 11 has had some difficult questions in it. Did you notice any of them? When discussing God's sovereignty and election of some, but rejection of others, we're faced with some hard questions. God says in chapter 9, Paul's quoting of the Old Testament in chapter nine, thirteen. He says, "Jacob, God speaking. Jacob, have I loved, but Esau, have I hated?" Wait, that's not fair. Romans nine, eighteen. God has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy, and He hardens whom He wants to harden. That's not fair. How can a loving God accept some but not others? God's sovereign choice of some but rejection of others just seems hard to accept. We might say, I don't like that. I, I don't want a God like that. There's tons of difficult questions like this as you work your way through the Scripture. Why is there so much war and killing in the Bible? Why does the Bible talk about women in a way that makes them seem inferior to men? Why is biblical morality so out of touch with today's world? Why is there so much suffering in the world? If God is a God of love, then why... Fill in your blank. A question we've all asked. Unanswered questions or answers that feel unacceptable threaten our faith. I think, however, most of us can tolerate a little bit of intellectual dissonance of unanswered questions as long as our lives are pretty much going okay, running smoothly. But you know what? When things don't go smoothly, those questions arise to the surface anew in an acute way. This is the second thing that can really rock our world and threaten our faith. It's unacceptable, uh, unfavorable circumstances or what feel like unfair outcomes. You know what I'm talking about, right? Those things we didn't want, we wouldn't choose, we can't control health issues that won't go away, relationships that we can't resolve, unfair treatment at the job, promotions that we deserve that go to somebody else, financial pressures that seem to suffocate us continually. And so often it's the accumulated pile of unfavorable circumstances, maybe not a cataclysmic one-time event, but the accumulated pile of unfavorable circumstances which rock our world and result in a general disappointment with life and ultimately with God. Have you been there? You thought your life would be better. You thought your marriage would be better. You thought your kids would turn out better. You thought your career would be better. You thought your health would be better. Most of us are plagued by this elusive better. And we don't even know exactly what better is. We just know we don't experience it. And the accumulated effect of it all is a general disappointment and a deep-seated disappointment and disillusionment with God, with church, with faith, your world's rocked. Not in one cataclysmic event, but in that accumulated pile of unfavorable circumstances. And maybe just feel like fading away, giving up on the God thing, and hoping no one will notice or care. What do you do when your world gets rocked? I want to talk through a couple different directions your life can go when you're in, a, in this situation. One of those directions will take us closer to God. The other will take us away from Him. When my world gets rocked, I can go in one of two opposing directions. And here's the first thing I want you to think about. I can react by going into control mode or fix-it mode, or I can rest in God's limitless knowledge and wisdom. Those are two opposing directions you, that I can go. Now look at verse 33. We've already read it, but look at it again. It said, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That's a place to rest. But you know what? I'm more wired by nature to want to fix things and control them. Are you? Now that's fine in some areas of life, like automobile maintenance... I actually, when my wife brings to me a a dilemma or tells me the car is doing something weird, I get a little excited, and inside I go like this. Oh, boy. I like thinking through the problem. I want to diagnose it. I want to go online and research it, and by gosh, by golly, I can't wait to fix it. I know that's really weird, isn't it? Even when I structure a sermon, I find myself gravitating to an outline that presents steps that we can take. I'm very much a how-to, DIY kind of person. But you know what? There comes moments in all of our lives when we're in way over our heads with no chance for us to control or fix the circumstances. Our world gets rocked with the medical condition that the doctor calls uncurable, the broken relationships that we can't fix, the injustices that we can't make right. The unfairness of it all. We find ourselves in over our heads and we need a rock that we cannot provide for ourselves. And we realize that going into control mode or fix it mode doesn't work anymore. In fact, it often makes things worse. God has a better option. He calls us to rest rest in a God who has unlimited knowledge and wisdom. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Think about all those words, depth, depth. That means that God's knowledge and wisdom is deep, profoundly deep, beyond our ability to comprehend. It's so deep, we can't go there. No matter how deep you think your knowledge goes, God's goes deeper still. The depth of the riches, riches. It's it's not the knowledge that an evil villain might have that he's going to use to destroy you. These are rich depths of goodness and love that God had his resources that he's going to bring to bear on your account. These are, these are the riches of a loving and good God who is rich toward us and for us. And then there's knowledge and Wisdom. Knowledge and wisdom are often used synonymously or interchangeably in Scripture, but I think there's probably a little bit of difference between them, especially in light of the fact that Paul uses them both in the same sentence. Knowledge is all the information that God has and knows, and he knows a lot. His knowledge is deep. Why wouldn't it be? He's the author of all things. He created all things out of nothing, and when your raw material is nothing, you never run out of raw materials with which to create. Isn't that mind-blowing? There's no limit to his knowledge or to his creative power. He knows everything about everything. I don't even know there are, there are things to be known. He knows things about things that I don't even know there are things to be known about. He knows everything about my life in every detail. He knows every detail about the lives uh, on every level of the persons, the people that I love. He knows every detail intellectually, physically, about them, uh, emotionally, spiritually. Nothing is beyond his understanding. I can rest there. And I can put my control freak, fix it, it do-it-yourself strategies aside, and I can rest. Oh, the depth of the riches of his knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom is another thing mentioned here. Wisdom takes knowledge a step further. It's the application of all of God's knowledge to plans and purposes. It's his knowledge in action. And this wisdom is as limitless, as deep as his knowledge. And I can rest with the assurance that he makes no mistakes. His deep wisdom precludes that, precludes the possibility of him making a mistake. The riches of God's limitless knowledge and wisdom is a place for us to rest. I don't know why it is, but... Little children seem to find mom and dad's bed the perfect place to retreat during a thunderstorm. I noticed that as recently as this week. Why? Does, do mom and dad make the thunderstorm go away? Not at all. The thunder's just as loud, and whatever threat the storm brings, real or imagined, is just as acute. But there is a place where someone bigger and wiser and stronger than me can calm my fears and let me rest. I need that place. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I suggest that God takes more delight when you rest in him than when he fixes your problems. He might make the thunderstorms go away, but he might not but he longs for you to find rest in him. He takes delight in being your rock, your place of rest, refuge, your place of rest. The purpose of your life is not in escaping all its problems, but resting and delighting in God. Kyle Eidelman, in his book, Don't Give Up, he writes these words, he says, one of the ways you know you're running the race God marked out for you is that you realize you are insufficient and unqualified for what you're facing. There's no way to run, to run that race without God's power and provision. So you and I don't experience God's power and provision when we react and go into control mode. We get it when we learn to rest in his limitless knowledge and wisdom. All right, so here's the second thing to, to do. When my world gets rocked, two different uh, directions I can go. I can demand an explanation or I can accept that God has higher and wiser ways. Now, this grows out of what we've just seen of God's limitless knowledge and wisdom. I don't know the source of the quote, but I guess it's been expressed by a lot of people in different ways over the years. It's something like this. If God exists and I ever meet him, He's going, to have, he's going to have a lot of explaining to do. Now, I don't want to criticize anyone who's ever felt that way or expressed that question because I get it. You know what else? I don't think God is uh, intimidated by or opposed to our questions. Abraham questioned him. Job questioned him. Habakkuk questioned him. But each, each of those men also came to accept that God has higher and wiser ways than our limited understanding could possibly fathom or grasp. And isn't it not possible that God knows something that I don't know and that if I knew what he knew, I might have a different perspective on things? Now, verse 33 continues. We read it. Look at it again. Another declaration. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out, unsearchable, beyond tracing out. I wonder, if, even if God gave me a detailed explanation of all his plans and purposes, would I even comprehend it? Would I even be able to grasp it? I mean, I had enough trouble with algebra. I'm not going to understand it, but here's the thing. I don't need to. Look at verse 35 while you're there. It asks a rhetorical question. It says, who's ever given to God that God should repay them. No one. God does not need to explain to me everything he does in the world or in my world. I wouldn't understand it even, he doesn't owe me an explanation. I wouldn't comprehend it even if he did. But he has lovingly revealed in this book, in the scripture, everything we need to know. And as a result, I, we, seek to be in this book on a regular basis, on a daily basis, to absorb and understand everything that God has revealed to us. He hasn't left us in the dark. He's told us so much. One of the ironies is that I would demand an explanation of him, but not be reading what he has already explained to us. So we search the scriptures daily, and we seek to build our lives on this truth that he's given to us. And yet the reality is, as it's expressed by Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are, my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. His knowledge and wisdom is deeper than ours and his ways and thoughts are higher than ours. I'm willing to accept that when things are confusing to me, they're clear to him. When my view is limited, his view is crystal clear. When my mind is clouded with questions, his is clear. So by faith, I accept what he has told me and I do my best to understand it and embrace it. And then between that between that space, between what he's told me and what he hasn't told me, we insert a five-letter word, trust. Is that five letters? T-R-U-S-T. Five letters. Trust. And that trust bridges the gap between what I know about God and what I don't. And when I and when I accept what he's told me that he loves me and cares for me and he's working all things out for my good and for his glory, and if I knew what he knows, and you know what? I would unhesitatingly say, bring it on. Your ways, your plans, your purposes, bring it on. I'm open to all of it. Demanding an answer from God for those things we can't understand actually will never satisfy us because we will end up sitting in judgment of God, making ourselves a higher tribunal than he. And nothing good can come from that. Let's continue with the third option, third thing. When my world's rocked, I can go in one of two opposing directions. I can counsel God on how to do things, or I can, there's the word again, Trust that he knows what he's doing. One day this week, my daughter, nine years old, she said to me, Dad, you know what? If I were God, now when a, when a child starts a statement with, if I were God, you know, something priceless is about to come. She said, Dad, if I were God, I would not have invented ticks. It's precious to me because I love that she's sharing with me, her dad, what's in her heart and mind. But it's also precious because it is so profound. Because every one of us comes to a place at some point, we are sitting in, we're giving God counsel on what he should or should not have done, what he should or should not do. If I were God, every one of us looks at our world at some point and says this, if I were God, I would have done things differently. We want to counsel him on what he should have done. And as we get older, and as we understand more of the injustices that take place in our world, our counsel to God becomes heavier, weightier, Our accusations increase in their severity. If I were God, I would not let children suffer. If I were God, I would not permit cancer. If I were God, I would not have let that abuse take place. And our counsel to God erodes any possibility of trusting that he knows what he's doing. Now look at verse 34. Again, it asks a rhetorical question. Who has known the mind of the Lord? What's the answer? No one, except to the degree that he's revealed his mind to us. Or who has been his counselor? Again, what's the answer? No one. We could not advise him, even if we wished to. What wisdom do we have to share with him? What do we know that we need to inform him about? Anything we know, it's because he's revealed it to us. There are things we are meant to understand... But no one knows the mind of God to the degree that he or she can become God's counselor. Counseling God on how to do things is a dangerous place to be. John Piper, on this topic, writes, The world is filled with God advisors. The one thing Paul explicitly says we cannot give and dare not give is what proud sinners most often give. They tell God how he should run the world and warn him that if he doesn't run it their way, they won't believe in him. As if a diabetic child should say to his pediatrician, don't give me any more shots. And if you stick me with that insulin needle again, I'm never coming back. As if that were a threat to God. Don't advise. Don't threaten God. Trust him. All else is suicide. So, to, so often our counsel to God on how he should operate is based on our very limited knowledge and understanding. Now, I'm no expert on ticks, And even what I'm about to say now is based on very limited knowledge of the subject. But I wanted to give my daughter a possible different way of looking at it. And as an animal lover that she is, I thought I should suggest to her that, you know, chickens, especially guinea hens, they love to eat ticks. I'll bet if they could talk, they would be glad that God created ticks. So as you fill in the blank on your own version of what you would do if you were God, I wonder if you're able to come to the place where you can trust that he knows what he's doing even when you don't and praise him for being wiser than you? Here's one more uh, uh, thing for us to consider today. When my world's rocked, I can go in one of two different directions. I can seek my own satisfaction, which means closing the door on God and all that church and religious stuff and faith. I'm done with that. I'm going to focus on myself. I can seek my own satisfaction, or I can embrace God's glory that's my highest calling. So Paul wraps up this doxology of praise in verse 36. Look at it again. It says, for from him, talking about God, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. I like grammar. I know that's weird. But I'm intrigued by this verse because the message of this verse revolves around what part of speech? English teachers? Right, prepositions. From him, they're italicized for you. Through him, to him are all things. To him. Be the glory. Now, I'm sure each of those phrases, we could talk about its own unique nuance or, or meaning, but can I summarize for you the, the main meaning that Paul's doing in, in expressing it this way? He's trying to tell us this. It's all about him. Always has been, is now, and always will be. Whatever happens in this world, it's all about God and his glory. Life, struggle, sin, redemption, salvation, rescue, beauty, eternity. It's all from him, through him, and for him. So to him be the glory. But you know what else else this also means? It means it's not about me. I mean, it's not ultimately about me. It's not ultimately about you. We are players. He created us to be sure. He's given us minds to think and to reason. He's given us free will to decide and to act. But there's nothing we have that hasn't first come from him. It's all from him. It's for him. It's to him. It's through him. It's all him, and as a result, life is not really ultimately about us. It's about him. So when I seek my own satisfaction or make my happiness the chief goal of my life, then I'm doomed to a a level of existence far below what what he has in mind for me, what he's created me to experience. So a number of years ago, I set out to read what became a national best-selling book. It's Rick Warren's The Purpose-Driven Life. Everybody wants to know why we're here. So the book addresses what's the purpose of my life, what on earth am I here for? Every, that is a question everyone seeks at some point to ask, and everyone answers, by the way, in one way or another. And you will live your life in accordance with the way you answer that question. But anyway, I, just started, I decided to start reading in Chapter 1. That's generally a great place to start any book that you choose to read. And I read the first few words, the first line, the first statement, and then I had to close the book and sit in silence because it blew, it blew me away. I don't know why it blew me away, but it just struck me so... It's these words, it's not about you. He then continues in that opening paragraph, the purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you are placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. That sounds like Paul's doxology. For from him and through him and to him and for him are all things. To him be the glory. That includes you, your life, the details of your life, even the ugly ones that rock your world. It's all about him and his glory. So the text today ends with this declaration, to him be the glory forever. Amen. When God's glory becomes the, the overarching and highest purpose of my life, then I'm living out my life's purpose. You see, your life's purpose is not a task, to be accomplished, or a checklist to be completed. It's a God to glorify, a God to know, to love, to serve, and to enjoy. And I want to wrap it up here again with another quote from John Piper on this very subject. It's a little bit long. We'll put some of it up on the screen, but listen closely. It says, do you love that, do you love that thought that you exist to make God look glorious? Do you love the thought that all creation exists to display the glory of God? Do you love the truth that all of history is designed by God to one day be a completed canvas that displays in the best way possible the greatness and beauty of God? Do you love the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to vindicate the righteousness of God? and repair the injury that we had done to the reputation of the glory of God? Do you love the truth that you personally exist to make God look like he really is glorious? That's why God created the universe. That's why he ordained history. That is why he sent his son. That is why you exist forever to see and savor and show the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The question at the end of Romans 11 is this, do you embrace this calling as your treasure and joy. So as I spent this week focusing on this passage and these thoughts in my own life, and the things that were troubling me in a continual way and building up inside of me and causing the anxiety, I suddenly began to realize that in light of God's, the depth of God's rich wisdom and knowledge, I could rest. And I felt a great sigh Come into my heart. Those sides where you can finally feel that you are rest. Nothing outside changed, but something in here did because I was able to focus on the, for just a little bit, in my own small way, on the incomprehensible riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. And my desire for you today that you can find that place of rest too. To him be the glory forever. Amen.